First, though, we are starting the show today talking once again about the increase in gang violence, the number of shootings we have seen in Metro Vancouver throughout uh, or throughout the past week, uh, 10 days, 10 shootings in a very short period of time. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Eileen Mohan. Eileen's son, Christopher Mohan, uh, was killed in the Surrey 6 shooting. Eileen, thank you so much uh, once again for coming on the program. Thank you, Jill, for having me. When you see what's happening and see the escalation once again in gang violence, what is your reaction to that? I feel that, you know, um, that history is repeating itself again. This is what the situation was when Christopher's innocent life was taken at the doorstep of our home. Little did we know that this gang violence will reach to residential places where innocent families lived. And and um, this gang violence has to stop, and there has to be a very strong message out there from the courts of our, uh, of our country. And is that where you think the, the main issue lies or where we could improve is when it comes to courts or when it comes to penalties for people who are involved in this kind of lifestyle and this kind of violence? Uh, definitely, because uh, going back when Christopher were, uh, Christopher was taken from us, um, uh, when we looked back at the history and the criminal activities of the people who took Christopher's life, at that time there was a revolving door from the court system. They had long histories of criminal activity, and they were in and out of jail without proper consequences to their actions. And I find, and I don't have to go too far away, in my own case, where Christopher's case, there were so many sweetheart deals that were cut, that hardcore criminals are now walking free on the street. And we don't have to go too far away to see where Jamie Bacon and the the type of sentence he got, only five years, seven months, and some days. I want to play for you a short clip. Yesterday on the program, we started the show talking with Wally Opal, who is a former judge. Also, uh, well, he's had many, many hats, but we were talking to him mainly uh, as his former role as being a judge. Uh, his take on on this idea that it's it's basically or that we can turn to this and criticize the courts. The Americans have a system where they give long sentences to uh, to. Uh, offenders with guns and people who get involved in crimes of violence and uh, their their uh, level of gang violence is larger than ever so i don't think that's really the problem the problem really is there aren't many of these cases that are before the courts i know that you can always pick out an outstanding example and say well surely that sentence could have been longer and maybe it could have been but the people who get involved in these types of crimes don't think of the legal consequences of getting caught. In fact, most of them are out there quite brazen, and they don't think they're ever going to get caught. What do you say when you hear that? I, I respect Mr. Wally Opo and his views, but I feel with his experience and the number of years he has in the court system, I believe he ha- there has been so much criminal activities and criminals in front of the courts that have come and gone that 
the people of today, we are we have more educated gangsters and, you know, social media is out there. When Christopher's case was out in the public media and everybody was looking at it with grasp, uh, disbelief, and they, the criminal um, activity had peepered down, we, you know, it has just in the last couple of years risen again because if you see the sentences that are laid out from the courts, the courts of British Columbia and our country was made to serve and protect the people and the citizens of our country. When we don't feel that the courts are serving us and, and, and the judgment is more in line with the criminals, and I don't have to go far away. In my case, there's two criminals who were given an opportunity of retrial. Now, if the judge gave them a retrial and said it's an abuser process, first of all, before anything started, these two criminals came to my doorstep and abused my son's rights and our rights. If they are ordered a new trial, then the judge should order these two criminals to bring Christopher's back, uh, life back anew again. So it goes both ways. Can the judge do that? Can these two criminals bring Christopher back? So where is the balance of rights between the criminals and innocent families like us? And, and I've, I have, you have to see how many families stand by the courts of British Columbia thinking where, what, is happening to our rights. We're not looking for revenge. We understand what's going on. But if the, there is not a stringent message from the court system as to deter the, the activities of criminals, then these criminals are emboldened. Do you think they care? They know they're going to be revolved around the system because they have equal rights than us. And if they, they, I mean, in my, and I've said this several times, that once you're a criminal and you've created, and you've taken a criminal step, your rights cannot be as equal to mine. There has to be some consequences to the actions, especially taking lives of innocent people. And the, and the gang violence that is going on in the public today I'm telling you, it brings, it fears me that, you know, we weren't prepared to organize a funeral for my only son. And I'm, and I'm fearing for the families out there who may be caught in the, in the violence and they too will lose someone who they love so much. All right, uh, Eileen, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I do appreciate uh, you chatting with us again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Joining me now is the mayor of North Vancouver City, Linda Buchanan. We're talking a bit about renters, uh, renters that face uncertainty when it comes to rent evictions and what could be done uh, to kind of help out in that scenario. Mayor, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jill. Uh, So you're putting forward a proposal or a motion to help out. What exactly does it say? 
So um, actually, the motion went this past Monday, so it's already it was passed unanimously by council, um, and it was really to um, give our staff direction uh, to really look at to look at enhanced regulations to support tenants facing uh, rent eviction. So, what are some of the tools that we can uh, utilize um, to support to support people in our community, and particularly those people who are living in our older purpose-built rental stock? How big of a problem is it or an issue uh, is it, do you think, in North Van City, uh, the, the idea or how often is are rent evictions happening? Well, I haven't heard of, you know, and certainly in, in, in my tenure as mayor, I haven't heard of it a lot. But over the last several weeks, I have been working with a particular resident uh, in my community who who lives in a building that this has been uh, happening to. And and really, um, so it's kind of, it was timely in the sense that I've been working with this particular resident and through my office and with my staff. Um, there was a re- the recent court decision that the city of New Westminster has won in terms of the issue that was happening um, in their community. Um, and then we've got new um, legislation that I think the province is coming coming out with in July. And so, um, you know, it, it's not happening a lot that I'm aware of, but we're not often told. But I think what we have is an environment, uh, given the, 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 land, the land assessment values and land costs and the freeze on rents, that it is a potential risk that it'll be happening more and more as, you know, this business model, um, for purpose-built rentals, uh, it, it's not working. It's a bit broken, in fact. And so I think as we see, you know, uh, we have a lot of great landlords who generationally have owned buildings in our city for a long, long time. But the the, the reality is, is it's it's more and more expansive with these older buildings and to 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 maintain them. And the conditions that we have in place um, aren't aren't going to help that business case moving forward. So we wanted to see, I wanted to see what is it that we can do to support those renters and really create an envir- uh, environment that doesn't incentivize that to be happening and, and really to support the, the really good landlords who are wanting very much to maintain their buildings and support their residents. Uh, when it comes down to it, though, uh, is it is it trying to find a balance there? Because council could, I would imagine, uh, when somebody comes forward with a proposal or with an application to get a permit uh, for a, a renovation, for a rebuild, for a demolition, those are all decisions that would have to be made by council f- first off anyway, wouldn't they? Um, it, it, so two different things. So one is redevelopment. So if it's a redevelopment of a property, then then yes, because it's land use. So it comes through and it, it falls under the jurisdiction of local government. And, and so there is very specific um, processes in place. And we have a residential tenancy di- displacement policy to protect those renters. And that's for an entire redevelopment of a of, of building. For the older, the same kind of purpose-built rental that uh, is just looking at rent, the landlord is looking for renovations, that relationship between the tenant and the landlord actually falls under provincial jurisdiction. So it falls under the, the Residential Tenancy Act. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of fallen in, it, fall, it falls in that. But there are tools, and, and New Westminster was really the lead in sort of questioning this to, to look at that there are, in fact, some bylaws that we can look to put in place that would be complementary to that, uh, to the Residential Tenancy Act um, that the court has ruled um, that we can, as local government, put those in place, and and that's again so really looking at 
enhancing our review and verification of the permits that we have to issue for for the work that they're asking to to be done is uh, you know does it require that all residents have to move out um, so really making sure that the displacement is minimized and that the work they say they're doing is in fact the work that they're they're going to be doing we can also look at using a tenant relocation coordinator like we do with a, the redevelopment side um, and and offer assistance to tenants facing displacement um, and then also looking at so we have a policy for redevelopment when when properties are getting redevelopment um, we have units that are, are built, 10% of the units in redevelopment of, of purpose rental uh, goes into uh, perpetuity and is rented at 10% below uh, CMHC rates. So looking at building that into creating a registry, because we're having more and more of those come on stream so that people who are also in buildings that are being renovated and being displaced could have access to those units, which are far more affordable. Um, and then also, you know, updating things like our rental premises standards of maintenance, our strata confer- conversion policies, and really having a conversation as well with, with renters of these older buildings as well as the landlords to 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 kind of find out what what is the experience for them. And to your point, this this is a balance. We have to balance like protecting and making sure that our residents, um, you know, um, have a place to live and can continue to live here because it is a right that, you know, everybody has the right to have adequate housing, um, but also supporting, you know, those landlords who are wanting, again, to work in good faith and want to be maintaining their buildings. And, and again, the, the model that it is right now, you know, for some, you know, they often look to go, I, I can't make this work, um, so I'm going to sell. And often who's coming in to buy these are uh, companies that have a lot deeper pockets, um, often are companies who are looking at returns for shareholders. Um, so that's what their interest is. My interest as a mayor is making sure that the residents in my community um, feel safe and, and comfortable in their in their home and that we have they have access to other housing if their building is legitimately being renovated. Uh, does it also address uh, what I know people have brought this up in the past that even when they are moved out for uh, a renovation, uh, there's the clause often that the the, the current tenants are offered then first right of refusal on the units when they're ready again, but they're often much more expensive. Does it address that at all? Uh, staff will look, they'll, they'll start to look at that. And I guess that's again where like all three levels of government really have to be looking at this. This is a, it's, it's, very complex and it does it does kind of weave through both local and provincial authorities so we have to be looking at that and again part of that is that what is the economic model here that's going to actually work and 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 be in balance and that's where for our policy where we have those mid-market units those ones that we do secure when they're when buildings are redeveloped, those units are, are, are rented at 10% below, as I said, CMHC rates. So they end up being about 30, 30 to 40% discounted um, off market. And so, you know, we're having more and more of those come on stream. And so we want to make sure that we have a, you know, can look at a registry and, and who might operate that registry. And so people who really need to be in those units um, have access to those units. I mean, you can imagine for someone living in a building for 30 years who's never been exposed to the market that we've got right now, right now, 
uh, we don't have anything in place um, because it falls under the provincial jurisdiction. We don't have anything in place to support them. And and where where would they where would they turn? Where would they go? Where would they even know where to start to look for a, a, a unit that would be affordable for them? Uh, when do you expect then uh, city staff looking at this? When do you expect you might hear back or we might see something happen on this file? Well, hopefully, uh, you know, I can't, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't get to dictate uh, the, their work side of things. But you know, this is an important issue for us. So there's a lot of work that we are doing uh, around the housing file. So I would expect in the next four to six months, they'll uh, they'll come back. We'll certainly be convening conversations with renters and and landlords, getting their lived experience of of this issue. And hopefully, staff will have something back to us uh, in early to late. Well, probably more late fall. All right. Uh, we'll wait uh, for that update. Uh, Mayor Buchanan, thanks so much for your time today and for talking about this with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Well, I think we can all agree that the tourism and hospitality sector around the world has been hammered by this pandemic. And certainly in BC, that sector is no exception. But many members of that are now saying that there is a need for a restart plan, at least some kind of roadmap moving forward to know when things are going to be open again and when things are starting will start to get better. Well, Mandy Farmer is the president and CEO of Accent to In and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. I know you and several other uh, tour- tourism and hospitality leaders uh, ha- have put together kind of a, a game plan or a-, a list of what's needed as far as that restart plan. What would you like to see at this point? We are really hoping that our government will put together a roadmap for our reopening. So what we're looking for is we want to know how many vaccinations we need to get to. We want to know like what the case count needs to get to so that we can then start running our businesses the way that we should be running them. So, for instance, right now, I've got, uh, I'm about to open a restaurant in Tofino, and I am fully staffed, ready to go, because I'm hoping that on May 25th, we're going to get the green light. What are the odds of us getting the green light? I have no clue. No one knows. But the problem is, is that we still have to be fully staffed on that day when we get the green switch. What we'd like instead is to have a bit of a roadmap so that we know exactly how we can open. Are we getting close to reopening so that we can adjust accordingly? Um, the other thing is, is that right now we are talking to tour operators, not for this summer, but for next summer. And so they want to know, well, when is the border going to be reopened? Uh, What are the guidelines for reopening the border? At this point, we actually have no clue. So we're looking like a bunch of inexperienced fools because we can't answer these questions. And so what's happening is that a lot of these international tour operators are going to pick other locations, other destinations, so, you know, maybe they'll take Canada off the list and they'll, they'll replace it with the Caribbean or Europe, who those countries that actually know, yeah, this is how we're going to open. Right now, our country has got no roadmap for reopening. And my guess is when you hear the prime minister throw out things like this, this will be a one dose summer and that'll get us ready for a two dose fall, which really tells us nothing. That doesn't answer yeah. any of your questions. It really doesn't. That's got to be daunting opening up a restaurant during a pandemic. I would imagine that's got to, it's stressful at the best of times, let alone when all of this is going on. 
Exactly. Um, but I think that's what the whole tourism industry has been faced right now is that, you know, we're, we're going to keep struggling and surviving and pivoting and doing whatever it takes in order to succeed. And so for us at Hotel Z in Tofino, um, this restaurant is a part of our, our plan for uh, making our hotel vibrant and successful this summer. So it is a big gamble if the government doesn't come through and allow us to travel, you know, even travel locally. Like I would love to be able to welcome uh, visitors uh, from Vancouver Island to our Tofino location. I'd love to be able to welcome visitors from all across the interior to come and uh, stay at Hotel Z in Kelowna. Uh, and right now, we have not been given the green light to to do that. So even even some local travel would be a big help. Uh, so what are you doing right now then, as far as staff members and the hotels uh, that that are still there and, and operating, but uh, obviously not with very many people staying there? Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of training. Uh, we do a lot of cleaning. Um, we it, it really is a great time to invest in your staff. Um, so we've actually been having a lot of fun uh, with our existing team members. Um, but, you know, ask me that question again on May 25th, if it's extended, <laughs> I might have a different answer. Uh, yeah, I would, uh, would imagine. Um, a lot of people have been calling for this, though. We also uh, spoke with the Restaurant and Food Services Association. They were saying that also not only do they need to and really hope to reopen after May 25th, they need a bit of... of uh, lead time up to that they can't just flip a switch and open Mm -hmm. up again i'm guessing with your businesses that would be similar it's exactly the same um you know i know that my business will survive i know that we will get through this but i am very concerned about the tourism landscape going forward so for instance um the group that i'm really concerned about is uh we have amazing indigenous tourism here in british columbia Indigenous tourism is almost, it's mainly supported by international visitors. Us Canadians, we are terrible at supporting Indigenous tourism. And so what's going to happen with all of those businesses who are hanging on? Um, And we don't, you know, if there's absolutely no uh, international travel and um, and if uh, we Canadians don't support them, what's going to happen to them? Um, they'll likely go out of business. That's going to affect our communities. That's going to affect um, so much of our pride in our in our product. And really, it's going to take years for us to build back this amazing, vibrant tourism product that we have spent decades creating. And what would you like to see then as far as when you mentioned travel and opening it back up, but we certainly, and not that the situation is the same as what's happened in the United States, but the guidelines certainly have been more clear as far as, okay, you mm-hmm. can now travel uh, without a mask. You can now travel uh, within the country and don't worry about quarantining and, and because of it based on, on the numbers. What would you like to see here as far as, I mean, there's been vague language about the possibility of vaccine passports, about mm-hmm. uh, using different types of tests. What kinds of concrete things would you like to, or do you need to hear about that? Mm-hmm. Well, we would uh, first and foremost, it's the roadmap. So tell us exactly, like what what are the the actual milestones um, that will allow us to open up? Um, and then the other thing is definitely the the vaccine verification process. Um, we'd love to understand that that we're working towards something. Right now, we haven't heard anything, uh, but we see other. Um, organizations in the EU, 
in the states all working together on um, one that synchronizes uh, with other countries. We'd love to make sure that that Canada is on the same process. Um, and then um, we we want uh, you know just even a vaccination verification process uh, within our within our own boundaries right now. Um, you know I think every single one of us would love to have uh, a weekend away, and there's many of us who are vaccinated. Uh, is it possible that that we could travel in in British Columbia? Can we start making that a reality? Uh, so if they were to come to you and say, okay, here's what it is, uh, 70% of the population needs to have both shots, and that's something that would still be months away, what would happen then? Uh, well, it, you know, it really, it really depends, because um, if it is months away for, uh, for the international travel, then... Um, we're gonna we're gonna count on a domestic summer. Last summer we had a domestic summer, and there were many uh, in the industry that were that had a great summer. But then there's other places like downtown Vancouver that was completely dead. And so those those organizations are gonna have to rely on uh, further financial support. And as an entrepreneur, there is nothing worse than counting on financial support that right now all has a deadline um, and we would much rather be working for our money rather than uh, taking a handout. Right. And it's interesting when you say that because it's hard to even remember last summer, but we were encouraged to travel locally, uh, to, to travel within the province, uh, something that's mm-hmm. been, uh, uh, been while it's not banned, it's certainly been discouraged. We're seeing road uh, checks now set up. Um, when mm-hmm. do you, I, I would imagine the answer is now uh, that you would like to mm-hmm. see this, but as where are we now, mid-May, to, to, mm-hmm. to feasibly have a, a summer season, even if it's a domestic summer season, when do you need that roadmap? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, ultimately, we would love to have this roadmap before um, one of our largest uh, market places, um, and that's Rendezvous Canada. Um, that's going to happen in, um, in a week. Um, so we'd love to have it before then because we're talking to the world, inviting the world to British Columbia next summer. Um, so that, that is a crucial deadline for us. Um, but other than that, I mean, we, we, yes, we, we want to see this, this right now. Um, you know, I, I'm fearful that we're going to extend, uh, this, this travel ban past, uh, the, the 25th. Um, you know, even if it's a, for another two weeks, um, you know, the thing is, is the tourism industry, we have been running on losses for over a year now. And so we all held out the hope that it was this summer that we would actually start to make some money in order to cover those losses. And so every single day, every single week that goes by just eats into, oh boy, how are we going to make ends meet to come out of this? So that's why we're hoping for it to be sooner rather than later. That being said, the tourism industry is so willing to play its role in suppressing COVID. Um, you know, right off the bat, we said to the government, yes, we will do whatever it takes to help. So we're educating consumers on, on the travel ban. Um, we're willing. We are more than willing uh, to do whatever it takes so that we live in a vibrant, healthy community. Um, but I do believe that there is a way that we can travel locally um, sooner rather than later in a safe manner. 
All right. So we'll be waiting and watching to see what happens with this. Uh, Mandy Farmer, thanks so much uh, for your time today and for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, at the end of the show, or close to the end of the show today, we are going to be announcing today's qualifier for the top dog. So all you need to do is submit a photo of your dog to the CKNW contest page. Uh, You can see that on our website. And good luck. You will perhaps be a qualifier. And in the grand prize draw for $1,000, a worth of pet food from Go Solutions. More about that coming up on the program. Right now, though, we are talking about a program that you might not have heard about before. It is a program that brings fresh fruit, vegetables, milk, that kinds of thing uh, to BC schools. And it all comes from a nonprofit society uh, providing these schools, uh, providing these things to schools. It's been happening for about 15 years, but uh, it was brought up in the legislature on Tuesday uh, that there is an issue finding the funding to keep the program going. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Ian Payton, who is the BC Liberal MLA for Delta South, also the agriculture critic. Uh, Ian Payton, thanks so much for being uh, with us again on the program. Thanks, Jill. Uh, What do we know at this point then about the future of this program? Well, it doesn't look too promising. Um, We we brought it up yesterday. We found out this information uh, through the executive director of the uh, BC Agriculture in the Classroom program, uh, Ms. Pat Ton, who I've known for years, that um, they've been sort of scrambling to get an answer out of the NDP government since February uh, to confirm that the funding would move forward uh, for the next year and a half. And uh, as it turned out, they were told that the funding is not uh, moving forward. It wasn't in the budget that came out about three uh, weeks ago. So there's kind of panic in the streets. We brought it up in question period yesterday, and there was a uh, a uh, pretty blank look on the opposition wondering, you know, what happened here, and uh, we didn't get a, a, a straight answer as to where this $3 million is that the government chips in every year, all the way back to 2006 when this program started, so that children throughout the entire province of B.C., including um, First Nations schools and, and schools on, you know, hard-to-get-to places where some of these uh, goods get by boat, by truck, by even by airplane, of fruit, vegetables, and milk uh, to get to elementary school kids of all ages. Uh, so you mentioned that you brought this up. I know it was uh, talked about in uh, question period. So did you get any answer as far as the future of the program? Jill, I think we caught them very off guard because we, uh, you know, threw out two different questions between uh, MLA Mike DeYoung and myself yesterday. And uh, we certainly caught the the government off guard, and they really didn't have an answer. So, you know, question periods coming up in a matter of minutes here this afternoon in Victoria, and we'll see if they do have an answer for us. But that's our job as opposition and as the agriculture critic is to make light of the fact of just how important this program is for kids who sometimes go to school throughout this province without even breakfast. The fact that they get introduced to some healthy uh you know, fruit and vegetables and milk, which is donated uh, by the BC Dairy Association. So, um, 
you know, hopefully that's our job is to, to press why these things haven't happened and we need this money to come forward. Uh, I understand that the foundation that's been running this has actually been asking about this for quite some time or has been first brought it up in February, uh, asking about the future uh, of the funding. Uh, how important is it as far as the, the farmers that provide this? Uh, are they planting it specifically for this program so they need to know uh, whether or not they're going to be taking part in this? Uh, because I would think if that's the case, they need to figure that out pretty soon. Well, Jill, that's a very good point. And as you know, being from a farming uh, area in, in Delta, it's it's one of the best springs we've seen for, for planting with the good weather we've had. And there's all, over a thousand farmers throughout BC that contribute to this program with uh, uh, vegetables and fruit and dairy products that go into this program. And they need to know in advance uh, for their growing purposes is how much of their product is going to be grown and donated through a company that's also in Delta, a huge warehouse by the Boundary Bay Airport called BC Fresh. And that's where all the veggies in BC basically go that are packaged and washed and graded, and then they get shipped out. So BC Fresh does a wonderful job of sending off all different types of vegetables through Save-On Foods and Overweighty uh, to get into trucks to get to all these different schools throughout the province. Uh, did you get the impression then, like you said, it seemed like you caught the agriculture minister off guard about this, but if it wasn't in the budget, is, is it something that's been in all previous budgets since it first came in in 2006? Uh, certainly since 2006, when uh, the uh, the BC Liberal Party first brought this into effect through the BC um, Agriculture in the Classroom program, uh, it has been in the budget. And every year, there's been roughly $3 million from the BC government into this program. And mind you, there are other uh, participants, such as the BC Dairy Association, uh, the BC First Nations Health Authority, uh, that also chip in money to the tune of about uh, $500,000 to help make this program uh, make this program work. And we've even heard from the 90, 98% of teachers in the province are very upset that this program could be uh, squashed or diminished because they think it's a wonderful thing that these kids learn about, uh, you know, different fruits and vegetables. It's a, a healthier eating habit during the day. And even my friend Murray Driediger with BC Fresh said a lot of kids go to the grocery store with their, their mom or their dad or, or whatever, and they go through the produce section and they go, hey, mom, we, we, we saw this, we ate this in school, it's something different. And the mom says, well, what is it? And even the student gets to know what different vegetables are and says, well, let's take that home and, and uh, we'll try it out. Uh, so when do you hope, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it'll likely be brought up again uh, in uh, today, uh, in just a short time from now. When uh, do you hope to, or are you hoping to get a response today or some more, uh, some more clarity on this today? Well, that's our job as opposition, and, and it's, it's not really funny, but we, we see some crazy things that come out of this government, and we constantly go up against them as critics. That's our role as critics, to right a wrong, and that's my job and, and Mike DeYoung's job today is to get up in question period and try and say, okay, where is the money? Why, why would it stop after 15 years of supporting this program? You know, it's not just, um, uh, there's a thousand farmers, as we said, contribute to this program by growing the product, but there's 4,000 volunteers all over the province that really look forward to going to the schools and, and seeing the, the smile on the kids' faces as they present this food and milk to, to students throughout the province. So, 
yeah, we'll certainly be pushing back on this and saying, look, you've got contingency funds uh, set aside. Let's let's draw some money out of that and keep keep this program going. All right. Uh, we'll be waiting uh, to see what happens with this next. Uh, Ian Payton, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Jill, much appreciated. Anytime. Thank you. Well, this is something that's been happening for a while, but there's a good chance you have not participated in this activity. It is called plogging, and it is being encouraged. Well, it's something that's encouraged in a lot of places around the world. But Surrey is where one city councillor is now encouraging the act of plogging. And joining me now to talk more about this and what this means is our show contributor, John Jang. Good afternoon to you. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. I'm just plugging away over here, or is that plugging away? Oh, <sighs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, tell us first, for somebody who's not, <laughs> anybody who's not familiar with this phrase, what is it? Right. Well, I spoke with the uh, city councillor in question here, Laurie Guerra, about what is plogging, and this is what she had to say. It's not a term that she created herself. Well, I didn't. Unfortunately, it wasn't me that coined the term. <laughs> I might, I might be able to coin a different term. Um, but this, this um, plogging is. Um, it originated in Sweden, and it's it's uh, it's a, a partnership between jogging and picking up trash. So, um, and I've seen it. You can look online and, and see uh, videos of it. But it, I thought it was just so unique. Um, because the city of Surrey is very, very involved in, um, you know, with any initiative to keep our city clean and beautiful. Um, one of them is, the, the biggest one is called Love Where You Live, and it's a beautification and cleanup initiative. And uh, we've been doing that for the last couple of years. And, you know, schools get involved, any kind of community group gets involved. They can have T-shirts printed up, and it's, uh, it, it's kind of... Um, uh, an initiative where we get people out, we get our city beautified, and I'm trying to go a little step further with that and encourage people to, um, you know, to get out and walk, using it as a healthy activity or any activity, jogging, walking, um, and develop strategies within the city of Surrey to connect community members to walk together so that the health benefits of, of any exercise, walking or jogging, um, uh, you know, just is is going to be increased, and and also at the same time, it's really important to keep our social connectedness, and that's one of the things during this pandemic that people can still do. Of course, with with adequate distancing and um, you know masks if if need be, but getting out and enjoying our beautiful parks and uh, and cleaning up at the same time, I think it just ticks a ton of boxes. It does. So, John, I have to tell you, somebody, I guess, knew we were talking about this today and texted me earlier and said, what's plogging? And I explained what it is and, and what was it. And her response back to me was gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the word in itself is uh, maybe a little disconcerting to some because when you hear it for the first time, you're like plogging. It sounds so strange even when I pronounce it in my mouth. But uh, it's apparently quite helpful for you, for your personal health, for the environment, for the community. A lot of benefits to it. Now, of course, uh, I don't know about you, Jill, but I, every time I walk around the neighborhood, what I notice are increased levels of garbage, specifically those disposable masks that are now just tossed aside anywhere. So I did ask the counselor, you know, what has she noticed in terms of over the past 12 to 14 months of all the increased trash uh, throughout this pandemic? 
it's even gone so much worse that I have that I've noticed during during the COVID, um, you know, since last March. Um, I I frequent a Metro Vancouver park that's located in Surrey, and every day when I was driving um, up to um, an area in Surrey, I would be reporting. I was on speed dial on my Bluetooth phone to my assistant to get her to talk to the city engineering staff, and there was illegal dumping being done almost on a daily basis, and um, like huge, huge bins of garbage being dumped with with drywall in it, with, uh, you know, metals. It's just horrible, horrible dumping going on. And since that time, actually, I'm, I'm on um, the Metro Vancouver board and I'm a member of the Parks Committee with Metro. And so I, I kind of, um, you know, got the City of Surrey Engineering and, and Metro Parks to put together a joint, um, a, a joint working, if you want to call it that, on how to go about um, you know, alleviating all that illegal dumping, and they put up cameras now. The city has, and um, I, I must say that I haven't seen any, any illegal dumping. Not even you know garbage bags full of, of of trash that were constantly being dumped at the side of the park on the side of the road. So I'm really happy about that. But you know, when we can put these partnerships together, we can we can come up with a lot of um, we can do a lot of of good. You know, just with being able to do this. Which which makes sense. And to be fair, we're not talking about going out for a jog and then hoisting some discarded mattress on your back and carrying it <laughs> to the to the nearest uh, transfer station or even the bags of garbage that she's talking about there. Uh, but I think a lot of people would agree. We've noticed an increase in trash, in litter, as you mentioned, those masks that you don't really want to be touching uh, that mm-hmm. uh, have been tossed on the ground. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you basically plan for this. You don't just do it spontaneously because you might not have the proper equipment. You might not have a trash bag with you. So make it a plan to just actively think about, okay, next time I go out for a jog, I'm going to bring some friends. We're going to socially distance, but we're all going to bring bags. We're going to bring gloves. So that way we can take care of the trash that we do see along the trails a little bit more appropriately and responsibly. Please do not halt mattresses. Uh, those are the kinds of things that you have to report to the city. Now, in terms of how this city councilor came up with this inspiration, this idea, a uh, few people would know that uh, Lori Guerra actually has quite the extensive athletic background. Take a listen to this. I, uh, years ago, I, um, I, I uh, was a professional dancer, and um, I've, I've stayed active since I, I can never remember. I was a fitness instructor for many, many, many years, and um, have always uh, maintained um, an active lifestyle. I believe that it's not something that you can add to your life. It's something that you have to be um, vigilant to to do on a, on a daily basis or, or just have it as part of your lifestyle. And I've always done that. And, um, you know, I love doing that. My Right now, I, I do um, a lot of, I do Pilates, um, a Pilates reformer. And then I will also, I do a lot of walking in the parks with, with friends and family members and, uh, what I always say is we, we solve all the world's problems in one walk and then we do it again the next day. <laughs> so you get a lot of, there's a lot of socializing, a lot of, um, it's just really good for your mental health, for your physical health, for, for you know, just everything. And then this new initiative that um, I'm hoping that the city um, will, will explore, and that was what my notice of motion had suggested. Um, I'm hoping that it encourages people to get together and walk. I see a lot of people walking alone 
And I know for me, it wouldn't be much of an incentive if I have, you know, if I'm going by myself. Um, so I, I take a lot of time to make sure that we've got some friend groups that will go together or, um, you know, connect with one another. And that's what I'm hoping to, um, to inspire as well for the city. All right, to get out there, like you said, distanced uh, if you're not, uh, if you uh, don't want to go too close uh, and take your garbage bag with you. No, it's maybe not the most thrilling idea, but if you're already active, like Lori Guerra here, uh, maybe it's something you can do because you know you're doing something nice, and so you sort of pay it forward. Now, I did ask the counselor as well, how can this plogging movement, this world revelation, how can it grow? Can you see some things on social media? Can people get involved with certain hashtag campaigns? And this is what she had to say. Well, I would love to coin the term. Actually, I didn't coin it. Counselor Patton had mentioned it in one of our committees that she said she would rather plock, do plocking than plogging. And she said that would be more like walking and picking up trash. So I think more, uh, I don't necessarily want to get caught up on the term, but plogging or plocking is, is what the, you know, the kind of initiative that I had suggested would be. And um, we already have an ongoing initiative within the city of Surrey and it is love where you live. So Love where you live at Surrey.ca is the is the website that we can um, you can get any involved in this kind of thing and it does have a twenty minute challenge like you said so I guess the hashtag is love where you live all right see I like to do walk tales which is walking with a can of wine but I suppose I do have the free <laughs> hand I could also be picking up garbage with my free hand. Oh, there you go. Now that's multitasking. Really I love is. that. And now whether you're plugging or plucking, you can also do pliking, plollerblading. <laughs> There's so many potentials here, Jill, that uh, really this is just the beginning. All right. Uh, so are you going to get into this, John? Uh, you know what? I do like taking walks now. Since you know I moved recently, this neighborhood is quite fascinating. So I'm going to have to start plogging. <laughs> All right. We will check in with you and see how that's going in a week or two. Uh, John, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again. You got it. Thanks, Joe.